Welcome to News of the Times. This podcast is aimed for those with a passion for history and the human story. Through actual news articles of our past, I review the social media stories of their day, touching upon the lives, trends and world of the everyday person. I am Robin Coles and this is News of the Times. The Time, 1899-1900 to The Headlines In an accident at Grove Hill, Harrow, Edwin Sewell becomes the world's first driver of a petrol-driven vehicle to be killed. His passenger, Major James Richer, dies of injuries three days later. Guglielmo Marconi successfully transmits a radio signal across the English Channel. The foundation stone of the Victoria and Albert Museum is laid by Queen Victoria, her last public engagement. The British Mutoscope and Biograph Company makes King John a very short, silent film in London. The first known film based on a Shakespearean play. The first motor bus in London is launched. Raising of school leaving age in England and Wales to the age of 12, when a child is allowed to leave compulsory education. Great Britain loses to the United States in the first Davis Cup tennis competition. Winston Churchill is elected Member of Parliament for Oldham. Mary Ansell is found guilty of the murder of her sister in an insane asylum through the use of an arsenic-poisoned cake. The purpose was for collection of a life insurance policy taken out on her sister. Beer drinkers in northwest England suffer poisoning from arsenic in beer. Some 6,000 people are affected and 70 people killed. Herbert John Bennett is convicted for the strangulation of his wife in order to collect money from her assets and free him to marry his paramour. Our headline story from the Croydon Guardian and Surrey County Gazette, July 1899. A poisoning mystery and the subsequent execution of Mary Ansell. The circumstances of the crime will be fresh in the memory of our readers. In September last, the prisoner was in the service of Mr. and Mrs. Mooney at 42 Great Coram Street, W.C. On September 6th, Mary Ann insured her sister Caroline's life for £22.10. Early in the present year, the prisoner purchased at a shop near Great Coram Street 
three or four bottles of phosphorus paste, ostensibly to kill rats. On March the 9th, the deceased received a parcel bearing the London WC postmark and containing a small flat yellow jam sandwich. The deceased, with two other inmates, ate the sandwich for tea, and all three fell ill. Caroline Ansell ultimately died in great agony from collapse. The prisoner wrote declining to allow a post-mortem examination to take place. Three days after her sister's death, Mary Ann applied for the insurance money, which, however, was withheld. Inquiries were meanwhile made into the circumstances attending the girl's death, and the result was Mary Ann was arrested. She denied all knowledge of the poison cake, but the jury, after two hours' deliberation, found her guilty of the crime, and Mr Justice Matthew said that never in the course of his judicial experience had he had the misfortune to try a case in which so cold-blooded and revolting a crime had been committed to obtain so miserable an end. A Confession A star man writing from St Albans says that he is informed by the governor of the jail that Mary Ansell has left behind a confession of her crime. The police commissioner has been interviewed by a press representative he had opportunities of conversation with Mary Ansell before the death sentence was passed, and, though reluctant to speak, he at length did so, as he said, in the interests of truth. Candidly, he said, I do not think she was insane in all my dealings with her. I have come to the conclusion that her demeanour was more sullen than anything else. I've seen the parents and the father emphatically denies that there is any insanity in the family. As to the murdered sister Caroline, the father said to the commissioner, according to the latter's statement, she was as right as you are until her brother was killed, and she then fretted so much that her mind gave way. Mary Ansell was executed in St Albans Jail, on Wednesday morning for the murder of her sister, Caroline Ansell, aged 26, an inmate of Leversden Asylum, Watford, by means of poisoned cake conveyed to the deceased through the post. When she retired to bed on Tuesday night with the wardress watching over her, she rested well and rose refreshed at six o'clock in the morning under the care of the wardress. She washed and prepared for breakfast, but did not eat heartily. The prison chaplain was again in attendance upon her and remained with her from seven o'clock to the end. The condemned girl walked quietly to the scaffold, attended by the chief wardress and Mr Lloyd. The condemned girl seemed scarcely to realise, even up to the last, that she would be hanged, and although Assured that all hopes of a reprieve were useless, she held tenaciously to the belief that one would be granted. 
It was only when the procession was actually formed that her last hope vanished, and she was in a condition of collapse when the bolt was drawn. Advertisement from the Stanford Mercury, June 1899. Attendant, wanted, at an asylum for private patients. A tall, strong, active, healthy single man of thoroughly good character between 25 and 30 years of age as attendant. Abstainer preferred. Wages commenced at 38 shillings with board and lodging, washing, etc., applying stating age, height and last situation to Dr. Tate, the coppice in Nottingham. From Lloyd's Weekly Newspaper, November 1900. The Strangulation of the Mystery Woman at Yarmouth Beach. It was on Sunday morning, September 23, that a man strolling along Yarmouth Beach in search of shells came upon the dead body of a young and pretty woman. It lay below the barrack drive, a favourite walk along the front for cooing couples. Very little investigation showed that death was not a result of suicide. The body had not been in the sea. In and around about there were evident signs of a struggle, and tightly fastened around the woman's neck was a mohair shoelace doubly fastened with a sailor's knot. It was soon decided that she had been taken to that lovely spot and strangled. All that was substantially found out about her was not much, except that she was a visitor, and a few details of her movements and statements during her short stay comprised all that could be gleaned. She was a woman who dressed in summer clothing, and carrying a little girl of two years old, had only a week before taken a room at the house of Mrs. Woodrum and paid ten shillings in advance for it. A railway return ticket subsequently found showed that she had travelled from Liverpool Street first class, but the only luggage she had had was a parcel wrapped in paper with a change of linen. The Dead Woman's History Mr. William Clark, butcher of Northfleet, called at Woolwich Police Station. His son said was that morning reading from a daily paper the account of the arrest of Bennett. It occurred to him that the murdered woman may be his daughter. He produced a photograph of his daughter and the man she married four years ago. He stated that his daughter married Herbert John Bennett, four years ago. He stated that his daughter married Bennett and the police recognised the portrait as the man in custody. The photograph was without a moustache, the accused having grown one since. When it became evident that the murdered woman was really his daughter, Mr. Clark burst into uncontrollable grief and, on partially recovering, was sent with Detective Sergeant Holford to Scotland Yard to see Chief Inspector Leach. Mr. Clark described his daughter, whom at the time of her death was only 23, as being of a very loving nature. She was a teacher of music, 
when she met Bennet, who came to her for lessons. An attachment sprang up between them, and they became secretly engaged to each other. Bennet was at that time a grocer's assistant in the North Fleet Cooperative store. The engagement between the murdered girl and Bennet had gone on for twelve months before the grandmother was made aware of it when the girl had to confess that she was in trouble. The grandmother, greatly distressed, urged Bennet to marry the girl. This, at least, he consented to do, and in order to avoid publicity, they were privately married at the registrar's office in Leighton. Bennett and his wife moved to Battersea, where he opened a small shop for coal, green grocery, sweets, and other articles. He had with him at the time his wife's brother, a boy of about twelve years of age, to carry out goods. This boy, William Clark, alleges that Bennett and his wife lived a most unhappy life, and he often found his sister crying and very unhappy at the way in which her husband treated her. Bennett always carried a revolver, and on one occasion pointed it as if in play at his wife's face, pulling the trigger and snapping it. Mrs. Bennett was very much frightened, and so was her brother, as he knew one barrel was loaded. Bennett's Sweetheart More dramatic still was the discovery of another link of evidence. A young girl called at Woolwich Police Station to ask if she could see Bennett. She was his sweetheart, she said. She gave her name as Miss Alice Meadows. It was in June that Alice got to know Bennett. She met him first at his lodgings, and the acquaintance was formed through some friend of a fellow servant of Meadows, who lived at the lodgings in Union Street. The acquaintance ripened, and at last the two became formally engaged. He gave her an engagement ring of diamonds and rubies, and took her away for a holiday in August. The two went to Yarmouth at the beginning of that month. It was arranged that the marriage was to take place in June of next year. But after September, when the murder took place, Bennett began to be very urgent, and ultimately the bands were arranged to put up at church the next Sunday, and a house for their pair had been taken at Charlton. On Tuesday, the police went to Woolwich and arrested the young man named Herbert John Bennett. Although only a labourer at the arsenal, he, in his hours of leisure, sported a frock coat and a silk hat. He was identified as the husband of the dead woman and then owned to it. When the Chief Inspector Leach and Inspector Gummer of Scotland Yard formally charged him with murder, he gave an emphatic denial. Herbert John Bennett apprehended. Herbert John Bennett, described as 21, was duly charged with the murder of his wife at Yarmouth in September last by strangling her on Yarmouth Beach. The chief constable began his testimony by stating that when he arrested Bennett, Bennett said, what does it all mean? He was then told he would be charged with the murder of the woman found strangled on the beach at Yarmouth. To this, Bennett replied, 
I don't know what you mean. I've never been to Yarmouth. The chief constable then went to the accused Bennett's lodgings, where he found a watch and a chain. The watch was silver, and the chain was composed of gold and imitation pearl. These have since then, said the constable, been seen by the Woodrums at whose house the murdered woman lodged, and they were at once identified as articles she wore whilst there. From the day the body was found, said the chief constable, till the moment of his arrest, no communication was ever made or inquiry by the prisoner as to his wife, nor had he ever sent to the Rudrums since the woman's death to say that she was missing. Advertisement from the Lloyd's Weekly Newspaper, November 1900. Hair destroyed. Send me an envelope, stamped and addressed, and I will tell you how to remove all superfluous hair free of charge. Send me money. Address in confidence, Mrs. M.J. Oxford Street, London. From the Wigan Observer and District Advertiser, January 1899. Persistent cruelty to his wife. John Pryor of One Heart Yard, Greenup Street, was summoned for persistent cruelty to his wife, Esther Pryor. Mr. James Wilson appeared for the complainant and stated the case, which was to the effect that the parties had been married for four years, and for the last two years he had assaulted her almost every other day. On the day after Christmas, he got a razor, locked the door, and got hold of her by the throat, and held her on the table on which the razor was. He said he would do her, but she managed to get out to a neighbour's house. He followed her there and said he would finish what he had begun when she came back that night. But she didn't go home that night. But when she returned the next day, he gave her a good thrashing. He repeated it the following day and went out and had not been back since. The defendant was always drinking and spent nearly all his wages in drink. Complainant and two witnesses bore out this statement, and defendant gave evidence and denied beating her, his wife, except on one occasion two years ago, he called his mother, who gave supportive evidence. A separation order was granted, defended to contribute eight shillings a week towards maintenance to his wife and two children. Advertisement from the Scotsman, April 1899. Cadbury's cocoa is absolutely pure, being entirely free from cola, malt, hops, alkali, or any other foreign mixture. The public should insist on having cabaries sold only in packets and tins, as other cocos are often substituted for the sake of extra profit. From the Dundee Courier, November 1900. Poisoned beer scare, numerous victims. Manchester and Salford authorities report that numerous cases of people 
suffering from the effects of beer drinking continue to be received. In the majority of the cases, however, the people do not require any treatment except to totally abstain from beer drinking. Mr. Smelt, the Manchester coroner, had issued a statement warning beer sellers of the risk attending the selling of beer without first ascertaining whether or not it contains poison. Some hundreds of people were suffering from arsenical poisoning in the district, and this has now been traced to beer. Up to now, it had not been suggested that the brewer or the beer seller was to blame, or had any reason to think that the beer contained any injurious matter. But if beer sellers and publicans continue to sell beer containing arsenic and at death results, he, the coroner, would not hesitate to tell a jury that he must consider whether or not it amounted to criminal negligence. All beer was under suspicion, and none should be sold without a guarantee. Analysis for arsenic was a simple matter, and would only cost a few shillings, and to his, Mr. Smelt's mind, the difference of some publicans and beer sellers was astounding. He hoped authorities would condemn and destroy all beer containing arsenic or any other ingredient injurious to health. And in the same edition, Brewery Employees Ill. Press Association Leeds correspondent learned yesterday that at a large brewery within 16 miles of the city, nearly the whole of the employees have been down with a mysterious disease which is believed to be arsenical poisoning which is attributed to the use of some German glucose. Advertisement from the Framlingham Weekly News, November 1900. Old false teeth bought. Many ladies and gentlemen have by them old or disused false teeth, which might as well be turned into money. Messrs. R.D. and J.B. Fraser of Printer Street, Ipswich, established since 1833, buy old false teeth. If you send your teeth to them, they will remit you by post the utmost value, or, if preferred, they will make you the best offer and hold the teeth over for your reply. From a Scotsman, April 1899. Inquest, murder and suicide during religious mania. The inquest on the body of a female child, 14 months old, recently found in Repton Mill Dam, Derby, with a flannelette stuffed down its throat, concluded yesterday. The jury returned a verdict of willful murder against the mother, Harriet Meesham. In the same edition, the charge of murder. Yesterday afternoon at Barnsley, a glass blower named Richard Thomas Warmold was committed for trial charged with the willful murder of a widow named Anne Whitehead, aged 67, 
on Saturday night, April the 1st, at Monk Breton, a colliery village near Barnsley. It was stated for the prosecution that the deceased and Wormer were seen leaving the public house at Monk Breton and walked together in the direction of a disused quarry, where the following morning the woman's body was found, she having been strangled and robbed. The accused protested his innocence, saying he left the house after the woman had went for a walk in the village. Also in the same edition, Suicide During Religious Mania. A sad story was told at an inquest held yesterday at Leeds respecting the death of Edward Parker Oates, aged 21, who committed suicide on Saturday afternoon by cutting his throat with a carving knife. Oates was an engineering fitter belonging to Stirling. He arrived in Leeds on Saturday morning to take up a situation. Keziah Edith Oates, the widow, said she had known that the, the deceased for two years. They were married on Good Friday, and on Tuesday he kept saying detectives were coming for him. The coroner queries, I understand he used the expressions showing religious mania. The witness said he seemed to think God's wrath was upon him for marrying her, believing he was unworthy of her. On Thursday, the witness took the deceased to a minister who talked to him for about an hour. The deceased lost interest in the preparation of his new home. He objected to coarse chaff and said that the men at the work had nearly driven him mad. Verdict. Suicide during religious mania. You have been listening to the News of the Times, 1899 to 1900. And I am Robin Coles. Thank you for listening to News of the Times. New episodes incorporating a new span of time from history will be updated weekly. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and subscribe. You can also check out our sister channel, Simply Stories, found on all your favorite podcast apps.